This is Amy Herman, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author and a recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 731 or in the U.S. text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. It's a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox, so you can listen in just one click. Again, to get that, that's davidberkus.com slash 731 and the show notes for this episode. Or in the U.S., you can text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. This week, we're talking to Amy Herman. Amy is the author of Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life. It's a fascinating book about the power of observation and the power of taking deliberate steps to see what we're not seeing, perceive what we're not seeing, and make better decisions as a result of it. We talk to Amy about a variety of things from why we don't see as much as we think we see to why our visual uh, memories are so faulty to how, most importantly, we can become better observers and grow our visual intelligence. I put together sort of a cheat sheet of the lessons that really resonated with me. I call it four ways to grow your visual intelligence. You can check that out on the show notes page for this episode, davidberkus.com slash 731. Just click get the cheat sheet and we'll send you that four ways to grow your visual intelligence uh, PDF. It's a fascinating thing. You can get started today after you listen to this episode. Listen to this episode first, but after you do that, check out the cheat sheet and begin to grow your visual intelligence. So without further ado, let's get going with Amy Herman. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Amy Herman and I am the founder of uh, a company called The Art of Perception. And in a nutshell, what I do is I help leaders across the professional spectrum in medicine and law enforcement and intelligence and finance and business to help them enhance their observation and perception skills by learning to analyze works of art. I know that sounds crazy, but for some reason it seems to be working. I'm also the author of Visual Intelligence. See, and and um, it, it doesn't sound crazy. It actually sounds like um, beautifully polished and simplified. Because when I first kind of became aware of this book and what was going on, it was it was you should really talk to this woman, Amy Herman. She teaches cops how to not how to. She teaches cops how to protect themselves by looking at works of art. And, and, and it was like, wait, what? Yeah. And she teaches firefighters. She's all sorts of people how to observe their environment better by taking them on tours of museums. And I was like, wait, okay, what, what's good. So, I mean, so to, to set it up, you can't not have, have that pitch to someone and, and not have the next question be, how did you get into that? Right. <laughs> and I always wait for the next question, but I can tell by looking at someone's face, and since I can't see your face now, whether they get it or not. And the road, although it was somewhat circuitous, actually makes sense. Uh, I am a recovering attorney and an art historian. And I like to say that I took the practical aspects of each of those disciplines, visual analysis from art history and legal analysis from being a lawyer, 
And I put them together and started this company probably 15 years ago. And the idea was not mine initially. It was to start the program with medical students. And it came from Yale. It was a program that existed at the Yale Center for British Art. And I was working at the Frick Collection here in New York. And the idea was, let's take medical students out of a clinical setting, out of the classroom, out of the hospital, bring them to an art museum, and teach them how to analyze works of art so that when they go back to that clinical setting, they'll be better observers of their patients. So it's not rocket science. We did that with medical students, and everything was great. They loved coming to the Frick. I was learning from medical students. But I was telling friends probably three or four years into the program that my medical students had real tunnel vision. They didn't know much about the world, and they certainly didn't know anything about art, which was fine. And a friend suggested, he said, you know, there's much broader applicability for this. I think you should be doing this for other people. I said, like whom? He said, like cops, you should be doing this for homicide detectives. And I thought that was brilliant. So that Monday morning, I picked up the phone and I called the NYPD and I said, I have a great idea. I think you should send police officers to the museum to learn to analyze works of art so they'll be better observers on the job. Six months later, I had all the new captains in New York at the Frick Collection one thing led to another, and here I am 14 years later. Yeah, so, I mean, what was their response on that first phone call? Because I find that an amazing, like, I just I just called the NYPD and said, we should do this, and I, I can't even imagine what the response uh, on the other end of that well, is. I mean, I, obviously, you, you proved your case over time, but was it was it an immediate, like, yeah, that's a great idea. How come, no, you no, haven't called us before? It, it was not. It was not immediate in any way. I left out a critical piece of information that I was transferred seven times because no one knew who to talk to who was going to talk to me. And they said, you know, she's not crazy, but somebody needs to talk to her. And I reached a deputy commissioner who, on my seventh transfer, who I, I knew that he understood what I was saying because he said to me, "Miss Herman, if this is such a visual thing, why are we on the phone? Hmm. And so I invited him to come to the museum and he brought seven colleagues, first time we ever had weapons in the Frick Collection, and they got it. I showed them what I was doing with medical students and I thought, and they were the ones who said, this has applicability in domestic violence and counterterrorism and special victims and just across the board. So I started working with the NYPD in 2004. And what really changed the game was when the Wall Street Journal heard about this and came to uh, watch not just the classes, but the reporter went out into the field, went into the precincts and said to these cops, how are you doing your jobs differently after learning to look at works of art with Amy at the Frick? And when it appeared in the Wall Street Journal in 2005, that's when my world exploded. That's when I started getting calls from all over the country and agencies and companies and organizations. And they all said the same thing. Come teach us to see like you did those cops in New York. Hmm. And I, I mean, I think a lot of this, uh, I think a lot of people at first measure would be surprised to hear uh, well, that there's a whole demand for this because it's sort of like, well, we can, you know, we're pretty good at seeing we've most of us have been doing it all of our lives, etc. Uh, and it reminds me of I said this after the um the, or before we, st I said this before we started recording. It reminds me of a famous uh, quote that I, I love, and I actually we say in our house all the time. My wife, by the way, is a, is an ER doctor, so we totally get this oh. idea. Um, but we uh -huh. love this quote from the BBC version of Sherlock: "Of no, you do see, you just don't observe." Which is a, right. if you if you think about it for more than like three seconds, suddenly it's not a mystery why this would take off. We, uh, it, yes, we most of us have been. Um, seeing for our, our whole life, but we haven't been seeing everything because some of it is that tunnel vision that I feel like you you said the med students have. It's just as a, almost as a survival tactic to keep from going crazy. We have to filter stuff out. 
But I think we can, we can default into sort of the wrong filtering out. And with that comes this difference between seeing and observing. How, how do you kind of define that difference? Well, the difference, what you said is absolutely right. We are bombarded with so much information that our brain can't handle it all. And despite what many people say, none of us multitask well. So as you said, it's sort of the survivalist instinct to filter out a lot of that information. But what happens is we become a nerd to our surroundings because we are trying to get from point A to point B all the time. And we know, we think we know where we're going. So we see where we're going, but we're not observing. And these problems are coming up in, as you can imagine, in eyewitness testimony and people's perceptions. No two people see anything the same way. So not only do they not see the same way, they don't observe the same way, they don't prioritize the same way. So by using art as the vehicle, it's a brand new set of data. So it's not people going from point A to point B. I'm showing them things they have never seen before, and I'm asking them to use the same level of observation that they would use on a daily basis on the job. And for some reason, that's very effective because everyone sees something in a work of art. And with your note about Sherlock, um, not only are we talking about seeing and observing and what I perceive and what I notice, Sherlock Sherlock Holmes, they also had the line about the curious incident of the night of the dog in the night. And what the incident was, someone said, well, I didn't hear a dog in the night. And Sherlock Holmes said, precisely, that tells you that the intruder was not a stranger because the dog did not bark. So I people not only what they see and observe, but what are you missing and what are you not seeing and what are you not hearing? If the dog didn't bark, That means he knew the intruder. So it's the flip side of observation. It's what are we not seeing and how are we articulating what it is that's missing. Now, you you said something in there that I want to unpack a little bit more because I know know that people are sort of lightly familiar with this concept, but I don't think we think through the whole ramifications of the idea that different people observe the same situation differently. And, you know, we we go with the eyewitness idea a lot, and I actually think I got kicked off a jury for pointing this out one time. So I guess, I mean, maybe thanks or maybe no thanks to your book, um, I I got kicked off a jury. But I think for (laughs) for leaders, for managers, for people, even in the corporate world, there are uh, there are lessons here because sometimes we just keep going back to the same people for reports on what happened and and we're not getting an accurate picture because we're only getting it from one person. Right. Well, what I tell all of the participants in my session is that no two people see anything the same way and you could walk away from a situation or a person or a problem or environment with a fundamentally different perception of the person sitting next to you. And the reason it's problematic, quite selfishly, is when you have multiple perspectives, you make better decisions. You make more informed decisions. So I tell people that it's really, it behooves us to seek out multiple perspectives to make the most informed decision. And the craziest example that I'll give you, and it was a terrible internet meme about two years ago, a woman in the UK purchased a dress to wear in a wedding. And for reasons unbeknownst to me, she put it up on Facebook and she asked the question, what color is my dress? And the meme, I mean, it went viral in the biggest possible way. And people just had to chime in and say what color they thought the dress was. And I used that same picture in my class. And 60% of the people in my classes see as white and gold. 39% see it as blue and black. And there's always 1% who sees it as something else. And I just use it as an illustration that we can all be looking at the same thing 
and see things fundamentally differently. And it's very, it's very unsettling, especially in a business context or an organization where you think you have a unified vision and you really don't. So first of all, it's white and gold, but uh, I, th- I, mean, I think <laughs> I say blue and black. <laughs> no, so true story. When that meme was going around, my wife and I were on opposite sides of that. So we were like, "You're you're absolutely crazy." And then as soon as it settled in what was happening, we were also sort of terrified. And and not to get nerdy, I know there was a um, a Radio Lab episode years and years ago about mm-hmm. the color blue and did ancient cultures see the color blue and it really reinforces this idea i mean you call it uh, to some extent we can we can joke and simplify it to seeing and observing but it's really this realization that that we see with our brains and not our eyes and therefore we can train our brains right uh, our That's eyes exactly are exactly right our eyes are limited by the sort of inputs, et cetera, but we see with our brains. And I mean, in that regard, I guess, like, I mean, obviously pick up a copy of visual intelligence, uh, but where, when you work with people, kind of where do we start on this? Now that we have this realization that the dress can be either one, depends on the person, how do we start training ourselves to see more broadly or to observe more deeply? Well, in my course, in my art of perception course, I begin with that disarming dress that everybody knows about. And I talk about it in the context of not just recognizing and acknowledging that no two people see things the same way, but I also integrate it with the idea of creative problem solving, that yesterday's solutions aren't going to work for tomorrow's problems. So it's incumbent on us to think about broader vision and multiple perspectives to make more informed decisions because the bar is being raised every day, not only in the intelligence community and in law enforcement, but in business and education, everything is changing so fast that we need to incorporate multiple perspectives to more effectively solve problems. So I introduce works of art as the data. I tell people that I'm going to show you works of art, whether it's in a museum setting or in the classroom setting that you've never seen before. And I'm going to ask you to articulate your observations because these are skills that everyone has to use every day. We're all asking questions and we're all trying to elicit information as part of our job and to rethink how we're framing those questions by learning to look at works of art and articulate our observations. So once the class is over, I tell people to go back to their world and to observe things they never saw before. Think about one thing that you never looked at before and become newly aware of it. And there's a ton of information out there to, to become observant about. Mm, no, totally. And, a, and a, like you said, there's a, a lot more to see, but then there's also sort of seeing what's missing. And this is this is one of my favorite chapters, the um, how, how to see like an undercover agent or, or what you have it. But I think that's the, what what tools or tactics do you kind of recommend for getting better at seeing what's not there as well as what's there? Well, first, I give it a name, uh, the name, the concept. And it, it, I didn't come up with this name. I stole this from emergency medicine. The idea is the pertinent negative. When you're talking about what's not there, and the example, the, the reason it comes from emergency medicine, if someone comes into the hospital and the attending physician thinks they have pneumonia, or pneumonia is manifested or evidenced by three symptoms. Symptom one is present. Symptom two is present. But if symptom three is conspicuously absent, it's the pertinent negative. You have to say symptom three is not there, therefore it's not pneumonia. So we're so accustomed to talking about what we see. Well, I noticed A, B, and C, but I didn't notice D, E, and F. And this is particularly important if you have an expectation of behavior. Someone's going to do a certain thing, and then they don't. You need to say that it didn't happen. That's one way of articulating what's missing and what's not there. The other way to combat the idea of of articulating what's not there is simple collaboration. Ask other people. 
bring them into the room, bring them into the conference room, go to their desk, don't send them an email, just say, here's my situation, here's my problem, here's my investigation, this is what I've covered, is there anything I might be missing? And because of the simple fact that we see things differently, somebody could say, how come you didn't address X issue? And your answer will inevitably be, inevitably be, how did I miss that? Because how many times have you said to a colleague or a friend, how did I miss that? It was right in front of me. So I think about uh, articulating the pertinent negative and simple collaboration with friends, colleagues, and family members to get that missing information. See, I, I think that's awesome because it, it in in both situations, kind of seeing more, seeing more deeply and seeing what's missing, we come back to the same idea of collaboration and the fact that we need people, right? Um, to some extent, I mean, this is, uh, Sherlock had Watson, but maybe if there were a tribe of Watsons, he would have done even better. And this is, I think, a lesson that more and more uh, leaders are, are understanding too, that you might be the solo person who occupies that position in the hierarchy, but you need a whole team of people in order to see the situation properly, assess it properly properly and then make the right decision about all of it. And it's, you know, it's, Absolutely. We, we think of those as cognitive, but they're also very much visual and perception oriented. They are. And I think that, um, one of the topics that I have been asked to address, I would say in the last three or four months, even since the book has come out is what we call the, uh, idea of disruption disruptive technologies. We are so attached to our technology that, and disruption is not necessarily a negative thing, but how do we continue our visual thinking and our critical thinking in this age of disruption where all these things are changing by the day? And what you said before really hits the nail on the head that human interaction, I always say that nothing, there's nothing more powerful than a pair of eyes attached to a brain. No technology is as powerful as a pair of eyes attached to a human brain. And while these disruptive technologies can change and enhance the way we behave and the way we think, it's all a complement to human thought and human observation. So uh, I think it is there, there is no substitute for human interaction and their skills that we're always going to need no matter how sophisticated the technology becomes. Um, the book, again, is Visual Intelligence. The course is The Art of Perception. The perceiver and the thinker behind it all is Amy Herman. It's an amazing uh, work. I highly recommend you check out the book. And the book is also beautiful because it's got high-quality reproductions of all sorts of the works of art that Amy uses in her course. So it's absolutely amazing. But Amy, you know what's coming up next. Five questions to end the interview are the same five questions we ask everyone. And in particular, I'm going to be listening to your answers for what's missing from your answers. But if you're ready, here we Okay. okay. So the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, the best advice I've ever received. That's a good one. Uh, it's advice that I turn around and I give to people now. Look up and look around. Because the only way that you can engage in the world around you, it's not just on a computer, it's not just in technology, you need to look up and look around, and there's a whole world in front of us that we're missing, and it gives us so many opportunities to engage in the world around us and learn. That's great. Now, I know you're traveling all over the place to give the course and obviously to, to speak about the book. What's an average day look like for you? An average day. Um, it's interesting. I, I was just saying that on the Tuesday of this week, I taught two courses. And in the morning, it was for a retail. It was a creative marketing team of a very large clothing retail company. And the afternoon, I was speaking with people who interrogate terrorist suspects, both here and around the world. 
And the intellectual challenges in that, tailoring my presentation, thinking about how works of art can uh, be relevant and applicable to people in retail marketing and those who work in counterterrorism efforts are amazing. And at the end of the day, my head is still spinning from, from both sessions. And that's what I love about the work that I do. I get to work across the professional spectrum and make the idea of looking at works of art relevant to all of them. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Oh, great question. Uh, I'm reading three books. I'm reading a book called Just Mercy, which is um, about uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center and justice in our country. I just finished a great fiction book called Before the Fall, and I am reading William Finnegan's book, Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life because I just came back from Hawaii and I have a slight phobia of the deep sea, but I was mesmerized by people surfing. So I try to the news and world events and uh, try to keep my reading relevant to my work, but I also need to get lost in a book every now and then. Oh, I'm, I'm totally there with you. What do you believe that most people don't? I think that I put more value than most people do uh, in the idea of human empathy and human interaction. The more people are dependent on their technologies and their bigger iPads and their bigger phones and the larger memory on their computers, I go in the other direction. And while I I realize that technology shouldn't go away and will never go away, I'm a huge believer in the power of human interaction and human empathy. I think that it makes us not only sharper professionals, but it makes us more interesting people when we truly uh, interact with each other in conversation and face-to-face and can see each other. Uh, Skype is great. Email is great. Those technologies are never going to go away, but I really believe in the power of face-to-face human interaction, and I'm not sure everybody does. Oh, no, fantastic. And and actually that human piece and that human interaction piece speaks to our last question, which is uh, the title of the show, as you know, is Radio Free Leader. In your opinion, what makes someone a leader? I think what makes someone a leader is not only his or her ability to have vision, but their ability to to implement it and articulate it. And my son told me recently about an exam. People may know about this. Uh, This is making the rounds that a teacher came in and gave an exam to his class. And he said, it's one question, pass or fail. And the students turned and they had had a whole year of teaching and knowledge. And the question was, what is the name of the cleaning woman on this floor of the building? And again, it goes back to my idea of human empathy, that um, I, I think that leaders, they, they don't, can't be in their towers. They have to know all levels. They have to have a vision and be able to communicate it to all levels of the company, of the organization. And they really can't be in silos and say, it's my way or the highway. It involves everyone and knowing everyone from the top all the way down. Oh, that's great stuff. That's really great. And um, makes me think as a professor that I probably need to learn a few different people's names that uh, that I've been overlooking and makes me wonder what else I haven't 
been seeing. So uh, this has been an amazing time uh, for me. The book, again, for those of you, for our listeners, is Visual Intelligence. The course is The Art of Perception. I highly recommend uh, you check one or the other or both uh, out. And again, the book is absolutely beautiful. So it's definitely uh, it's definitely a keeper, although it's a little heavy, so it may not be summer reading. Um, wait till after Labor <laughs> Day when you're heavy. at home. I mean, necessarily so, because again, you need a really, really heavy paper to print as detailed as these photos are. So check it out, if for no other reason than to see the photos, but really check it out to see better. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you so much for having me. 